What a beautiful song and what a beautiful service so far. And I trust God will continue to lead us in our service to Him. This morning, the message title is Avoiding the Trap of Balaam. And the setting goes back to Numbers, Numbers 22. And I'll just have to say, I've just been so blessed uh, with the Sunday school class this morning with Brother Joe sharing and the thoughts you brothers shared. Especially that closing thought there that Joe shared that, you know, um, that little boy that took the loaves and fishes uh, that Jesus used, those probably didn't come looking all pristine and prettily packaged and so forth. The loaves are probably... Uh, bumped up quite a bit, and maybe the fishes were nibbled on, and he didn't say that, but I'll add that. And uh, maybe things weren't that pretty, but what Brother Joe added is God just took that bread and he broke it some more. And, uh, you know, that gave me a lot of courage. I, I know that this vessel here is, is a pretty frail vessel, a broken vessel, but I take courage in that God wants us to use a talent that He's given us and broken or not, however it comes. And uh, He wants that for me and He wants that for you. He wants that for us as a church. Numbers 22, we find the children of Moab in a dire situation. They're worried. There's this big group of Israelis down there in this valley. And it says in verse 3, Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And then it goes on to say they were sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And so they sent for this guy Balak, a diviner. It says in Joshua, who was later killed in Joshua by the Israelite army. And and, uh, somehow or other, he had a relationship. Enough so, God spoke through him. Let's say just this way. God spoke through Balak some way or other. So they sent for him. And uh, of course, I'd like to stay with the story of, of the ba- uh, Balaam's donkey, but I'll not go there this morning too much because of time constraint. But <clears throat> Balaam came over and he prophesied in spite of God's uh, feeling, in spite of knowing what he knew was God's feeling on this matter. And we remember how this moved along. Uh, He prophesied once and it didn't go according to Balak's plan, the the Moab leader's plan. He didn't like it because it came out as a blessing instead of a curse. So he prophesied, took him over to another place. He prophesied again. Again, the same thing happened. And took him over to another place a third time. He prophesied again and everything went wrong again. And uh, at least for Moab. And Israel was blessed those three times. And then there was a, just a really pronounced blessing for Israel that went down through generations. 
I'd like to look back in Revelation 2, verse 14. It says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And when it talks about Balaam or uh, teaching Balak uh, to put a stumbling block, it, it literally means a trap that's baited, meant to catch and hold its prey, to entangle the foot. In Numbers 24, 10-14, it says, Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam. And he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. You know, would that be said about us, that the Lord would keep us back from honor in this kind of situation? Uh, so Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent me, saying, If Balak were to give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says that I must speak. And now indeed I am going to my people. But then he seems to say, Come here, Balak. I've got a little bit I can teach you. Okay? Let me, let me tell you something. I will advise you what? This people will do to your people in the latter days. And it seems like the advice went on, as we see later on in Numbers 25. Balaam's talked about again in Jude, uh, the doctrine of Balaam and the Jewish um, teachings, uh, writings that we don't find in our Bible talk about Balaam in a very mean light. So in Numbers 25, verse 1, it says, Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Israel joined himself unto Baal, Peor. Baal was a general name for Lord and Peor for the mountain Moab. The real name of the idol was Chemosh. And his rites of worship were celebrated. This is speaking from a commentary by the grossest obscenity. In participating in this festival, the Israelites committed double offense. One of idolatry to Chemosh and the other one of licentiousness of adultery. Now let's look a little bit at the history of Moab. Let's refresh ourselves a bit. Moab was a son of one of Lot's daughters. Okay? And he was also Lot's son. He was the son of the, the incestuous relationship um, there after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah and after Lot's wife was killed by fire. She was turned into a pillar of salt, it says. There were two sons. One was Moab, one was Ben-Ammon. 
if I've got that pronunciation right. And both of those daughters, remember, they both had uh, sons by Lot, by their father. It seems like the the Moabites took on this god of Chemosh and the Ammonites, which would be of the other son, the god Moloch. And later on, it seems like the, the, the worship of these two gods was, were combined into one. And we read some really bad things about the worship of Moloch especially. It was undoubtedly the worship of demons. Um, in Jeremiah, there's a strong insinuation um, that the uh, this God Moloch demanded or that children were actually given to him. Uh, there are illustrations of this God showing him as a hollow, kind of a, a really nasty looking image with a hollow interior. The outside of it was cast alloy and they would start a fire and uh, it's thought that they would actually feed uh, children or babies to unwanted babies, deformed babies, whatever to it. Kind of the same thing as we would understand of, uh, as abortion today, a way to mitigate consequences of adultery. Be that as it may, there was an hor- it was a horrible religion. But to consider something, we look back again. You know, remember who Lot is. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Remember his selfish choice, taking that good land. Uh, his connection to Sodom and Gomorrah. He moved on in. He married a wife whose name, as we know, is Lot's wife. And uh, Lot's wife's upbringing this wicked Sodom culture. And let's think about how that may have affected, how that may have um, brought about Lot's children choosing these gods. I, I imagine they're a... Sodom and Gomorrah, God. So how, how would Balaam's doctrine affect us today? How is it affecting us today? I think we're being affected in many, many, many ways today by Balaam's doctrine. Um, we're witnessing an unprecedented embracing of God's Word to an effect negate his message. People are using his word, God's word to in effect negate his message. I believe we're seeing more of that today than, than ever. And it's being used in a very intellectual way, convincing ways. Uh, we see it in many mediums. Uh, Genesis 3.1, I, I do believe it goes back to the beginning. The devil's talking to the woman, to Eve and saying, Yea, hath God said... Yea, hath he really said this? You know, couldn't we figure out something else that he may have been saying? 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in the later time, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. It wasn't so long ago that we were in the middle of a fierce presidential election. And uh, our former governor 
Kane, who was front runner, um, he made, suddenly made a reversal on his beliefs. He told the Human Rights Dinner Campaign during its national dinner in Washington that he had changed his mind about gay marriage and that his church would or may follow suit one day. Remember, Cain is a Catholic. These are his words. I think it's going to change because my church also teaches me about a creator who in the first chapter of Genesis surveyed the entire world, including mankind, and said it's very good. And he recalled then Pope Francis's remark that who am I to judge in reference to gay priest? And he went on to add this, who am I to challenge God for the beautiful diversity of the human family? I think we're supposed to celebrate it, not challenge it, Cain said. Well, I'm not saying this to ostracize Cain. I, there's certain things I like about him. This I certainly don't. Um, but I'm just saying it. Pressures bring about, if we're not firmly grounded, pressures bring about change in our lives. They bring about... Um, they, they show us who is really God in our lives. And this confusing of, of truth today is, is prevalent. It's, it's like I said, it's, it's attacking us on every side. Social media is rife with materials of folks attacking truth in every conceivable way. I'm just amazed sometimes when I look at a thread following a statement that someone says it's biblical and right. You follow the thread and, and people are throwing around uh, the Word of God in ways that just is not the message of God. Calling goodness evil and evil good. In the Women's March for Death recently, or maybe it wasn't called that, but that's what it was. Uh, it was amazing to me to, to see how these women's calls for, for love and tolerance were so hypocritically hidden by their own hate-filled speech. Spules. Peter 2.15 2, uh, says this, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness, it says, the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So it's saying they actually go back and, and allure back those who have escaped from error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. For after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn from the holy commandment delivered them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit. And a sow, having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. What does that tell you and I this morning? You know, that looks so far away. Some of the things I've been talking about look so far away. 
Uh, but it tells me one thing, and that is, this is a dire warning to us. This is a very clear warning to us to not look towards the world for cues in social behavior. And this includes the way we think, our culture, our dress, and so, so much more. We need to be viewing the world as a snake's den. I remember being involved in a business dealing sometime get back. And I wasn't sure about it. I wasn't sure if I should do this. And I'm looking back, I'm not sure if I should have. Um, but I went into the, to the uh, transaction. It was, it was a, a, a sharing of a, a job with another contractor. I went into the transaction feeling like I was walking when I met with that, that person and I'm not saying that person is this, but when I met with that, that uh, individual, I felt like I was walking to a snake stand. You know, I felt like I was in a position to be taken advantage of. And um, I, I remember remarking to one of my brothers, uh, church brothers, that that's the way I felt about it. And I remember his advice back was, is that that's a good way to feel. And you know what? That's a good way to feel when we're looking around us today towards the world. We have to interact. We have to be part of it. We have to make a living. But I think we have to look at it. We have to keep our guards up uh, really, really high. Dangers of assimilation. And I believe that's where this comes to. Many times... Familiarity dulls our senses to the wrong. Lot's journey into Sodom appeared to have been a progression, not a, here I am in Sodom. Rather, a little movement toward, okay? And a getting used to. And that sinful culture, it says, you know, in Hebrews it calls Lot a righteous man, but it said it grieved him. But somehow he married into that culture. And somehow... Um, you know, he was saved but only by fire, but his children weren't. We're called to come out and be separate for a reason. And I'm going to challenge, I want to challenge you this morning with things that I've been challenging myself. Consider, you know, who would you find to be your favorite music artist? Do you know him? Do you know his background? Do you know uh, what he promotes. And uh, I'll go ahead and say your favorite preacher. You know, who is he? Um, what is he like? What, do, what would he really want for the people he teaches to? What would he want for their lives to look like? What is his personal life like? Your favorite authors. Again, what are they, you know, they're... Their belief system is bleeding through their books. And uh, it's going to influence you. Who are your favorite authors? What are their lives like? Your favorite financial advisor. Uh, we have some good advisors in the Mennonite community, Anabaptist community. 
And there are also other good advisors, but I'm just throwing this out. Hold them to a high standard. Are these people's lives consistent? Um, you know, our clothing. It's not in a vacuum when we buy clothing. These, our clothing sends signals. There's designers behind those. Um, what are their lives like? What are they pushing for? Are the signals that we give out, are they consistent with our professed faith and with the group of Christians we're part of? Moving on, your best friends, the people who you feel easiest around and who can speak most freely into your life and vice versa. What are they like? What, are their li what is their life's work like? Um, I think for us fathers especially, it's we need to take the time to consider the friends our children are friends with. Those children that they'll most likely, that, that they rub shoulders with the most, the children they'll most likely end up socially interacting with in the future and becoming intermarried with one day. Do those friends of your children and your friends, do they share your deepest spiritual values? It's true, assimilation will always lead to a certain degree of compromise. It's, in, it's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's one thing if my family stays up till 10 and yours goes to bed at 9. Um, we can get together and knock off at 9.30, you know, or 9 o'clock. That's one thing. But when two families feel very differently about the Word and the application of the Word, it's something very different. Um, and and it will rub on rub off onto how we think and on our children and so forth. I fear five ways to avoid Balaam's trap. And what's that trap again? It's that thing of pulling us in. Now in in the situation here with the Israelites, they sent in the Moab women, Moabite women to um, ensnare those Israeli men to take him to uh, worship with him in their idolatry. And of course, there was adultery involved, fornication. But there's, these traps are everywhere. They're, they're meant to entangle us, to keep us away from our best uh, decisions, to keep us away from making, uh, making clear-minded decisions according to Scripture. First of all, keep our treasure in heaven. Many, I think, immoral choices, and many, I don't say think, this is the truth. Many immoral choices and bad decisions take place when our treasure is on the earth and that becomes our focal point. The lush plains, the beautiful plains, the pressure to make a big profit, the lust of popularity and name recognition. Um, you know, these things tend to drive, especially men. They drive businesses. And it's so easy to get caught up in that. And popularity and name recognition, they are important. They need to be important to keep food on the table, but they certainly should not be motivators in our lives, in our life experience. Love for God, our fellow men, and God's ways should be our motivators. That's what should keep us going. Make our days 
worthwhile. And again, remember the narrow gate number two. If the path doesn't include and identify with God's people in a very uh, close way, if it doesn't call for discipleship among fellow believers in a holy standard of living, um, it's right to question if it's the narrow path, I believe. And it's right to be concerned about it. Very concerned. Uh, the narrow path, Jesus never promised us a wide path. He said there's a narrow path. Number three, develop an abhorrence for sin like Phineas had. Remember what stopped that, and I don't know how familiar you are with this that story back in, in Numbers 25. As this thing moved along, as those Moabite women lured these Israeli men, and I don't know, there may have been an interchange there of Moabite men with Israeli women too. I don't know. But as this was taking place, a plague started. People started dying. And Phineas, um, a priest, he saw one of these... Um, Israeli men take a Moabite woman into their tent and it was all about immorality. And he went running over there. It was said in front of the congregation of Israel. And he drove a sword through them both, it says, and killed them. And God stopped the plague. But in the meantime, 24,000 Israelite people suffered and died because of that plague, because of God's judgment on them. And I believe we need Phineas's today who are willing to stop the plague, who are willing to put the death blow to anything that militates against God's will in their lives and the lives of their family. The Christian has no reason to entertain the Moab women. Their designs and their worship of their gods are not for Christians. Women are to be sober and chaste, not cunning and trapping. And this goes for the men as well. Men should be studied to be approved by God not figuring out the best way to be cool. I feel that strongly, and I know I've erred in these places. But the Word makes it clear, and we can follow the Word, and we can trust it. Keep clear of man-made doctrine. Doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Doctrine that weakens or makes non-effectual clear teaching of the Word. Doctrine that separates believing from doing. Doctrine that gives allowance for worldly Sodomic, if you if that's a word, but you know what I'm referring to, influence into our lives. Doctrine that even encourages us to assimilate with the world. Historically speaking, when the Christian assimilates with the world to influence the world, the end result is usually only a nominal, worldized Christian. I've seen that happen in my life, and as I look back on people I know, people that are dear to me, I've seen it happen. Realize that true godliness manifests itself practically in a person's life. Sacrifices are useless to God if they're not from a heart of humble devotion and service. Micah 6.5 says this, My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? 
He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I believe walking humbly with our God will work itself out beautifully in practical ways of working humbly within the social framework that we find ourselves in and that God has blessed us with. Now, God has made it clear to Israel that he didn't want her to assimilate Mary and give in marriage to the heathen nations, and Israel did, and she paid a high price. God didn't want those sacrifices to Kamosh. He didn't want that false worship and so forth from his chosen people. That's not what he wanted. You know, we don't know how they went worshiping Kamosh. They might have worshipped, tried to worship their God in the meantime. That, that has happened often throughout history where peoples are pulled together. And I saw it ha- I've seen it happen in Central America where, um, where Catholicism has taken in uh, heathen worship as well and kind of blended the two together. Um, that's not what God wants. He wants people that read the Word, obey the Word, do the Word, walk humbly with Him and with each other. He calls for simple obedience. The worship that God structured. The worship that's God-honoring. So the question comes then, do we have the right to take a stand in our practice and to take measures to guard ourselves, our family, and our people from assimilation? I actually believe we do. We are called to take stands for our beliefs. The Bible is replete with examples of God blessing and commanding His people to stand apart and to carefully guard themselves from the influences of surrounding society. There's an interesting example of this in Jeremiah. And I know I've shared this before with you, but of the patriarch um, Rechab, and if you read that story, Jeremiah 35, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read a couple of verses here. I'd encourage you to read it. But Israel was going through a terrible time. She was faced with uh, judgment that came in the form of Babylon. And uh, it, was, it was right there. Uh, she was going to be taken into captivity. And, and many, many other things were happening to her because of the way she had moved into idolatry. And there was this family that Jeremiah brought into the courtyard of the king or into some high place uh, or honorable place. And uh, he made an example of them there. Jeremiah said to the house of Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. And I believe this gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. And I'm not sure that it doesn't go along with the verse that we read in Matthew 18, where it says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, they fit together in my mind. Patriarch Rechab was impressed that him and his family should take a stand to abstain from drinking wine and to live a nomadic lifestyle. And this was something that God had not imposed on them through the law. They, he just, Patriarch just took that stand. 
His children respected him and he followed his position for many years to this time. In the hours of crisis and destruction of, in Israel, the Rechabites were honored and they were blessed and it appears protected by God. And it says, well, they had to be protected by God because God said that they wouldn't have, they would never, uh, they would always have a man to stand before God in Israel. You know, it's been proposed that each generation will need to find its way. And I understand that. But the Bible does teach on the other side that elders are to teach the younger and the younger are to look up to the elders. And while it's true that each generation will need to take on the convictions that have been passed on to them if they'll be successful moving ahead, but they'll also probably need to make adjustments within the framework of Scripture. But I want to add this too. That it would be tragic if each generation would need to truly go about finding its own way and reinventing the wheel. It'd be a tremendous loss of energy and potential to not be able to continue on the foundation that's been built for us and it's been so useful to us for so many years. And to continue to build on that and to make it uh, work for us, keep working for us, keep working for our families, uh, it's a foundation that's God-approved. It's God-ordained. And it's a foundation that has served us well and has served our culture well and has served our greater community well. Do we have the right to be concerned if we feel threatened by the opposing influences, even within our midst? I believe we do. I have the right to be concerned when there's video games absorbing my child's time. And I have the right and responsibility as a child's father to check out those games for hidden dangers to set limits for those video games. Uh, and if I believe that game is becoming a detriment to my child or to my family, I have the responsibility as a father to maybe cut it off if that's what it takes. Does that make me a tyrant dad? No, I don't believe so. Not if I'm taking the action because I truly am concerned about the welfare of my household. Now, I believe tyrants are only tyrants when they make decisions for their own self-serving, devilish interests. Jacob was a patriarch. He wasn't a tyrant. He made hard decisions for the good of his family. as did Abraham, Joshua, Ruth, the Moabite, and many of our ancestors throughout history. And God honored those. We have the right to be concerned. And ultimately, this responsibility to act on every level if there are threatening influences. You know, we've been building fence a long time, it seems like, for our sheep. We bought some sheep about two years ago, and ever since then, we've just been building fence. Um, why? In a large sense, it's to pasture the sheep, but more specifically, this fence is designed to keep out the coyotes. We have coyotes around, and we know what coyotes will do to our sheep, and they'll wreak havoc. And we have, we have to build a fence that coyotes can't get through. Um, and I believe we as a church, as a ministry, have those same responsibilities. First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for a place to get in, and he doesn't care if he gets you as a dad or your child. He's looking, or your wife. He's looking to get in and to get in roads and to trap and to snare. 
And I'll add, there's no, no danger so great to us and our families today as the danger of influence through assimilation. I don't think there's a greater danger. And there's no greater potential for good <clears throat> than the power of influence through assimilation. You know, to be in a place where you and your family can feel relaxed and not threatened by many conflicting views from doctrinal to practical, a place where people serve with joy and contentment instead of contempt, within the framework they've committed themselves to is a blessing, tremendous blessing. Every family should, I believe, be able to experience and I believe it's the responsibility of the church leaders to provide this. That's why Paul gives these words of admonishment to the church leaders in his epistles, I believe. John 17, 15 says this, My prayer is not, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the word. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I believe lastly, most importantly, we're going to have to experience continual sanctification by God's truth to be able to avoid the many many pitfalls of shaded truth, untruth, blatant lies, and partial truths that are being hurled our way from so many, many different medians of the devil in our age. There, he has so many roads towards us, it seems like. Roads that weren't there years ago. Even 30 years ago. We're in trying times in so many fronts. And remember, the battle will almost always be fought at the points where we draw the lines, where the lines are drawn. Don't be surprised about that. Where we draw the lines is where the battles will be fought. May God give us wisdom from on high. This is my blessing to you, and I hope God's blessing to us. I believe it is. May God give us wisdom from on high to see through the wiles of the devilish Balaam we all will face or are facing. May He give us holy courage not to waver in our faith, but to stand firmly. May He give us divine strength to perform in the hour of battle. May He endue us with grace so that we will all, so that all will be done as unto Him and for His honor and for His glory. May God strengthen and help us. And God bless you.